Welcome to Leonard Lopate at Large. I'm Leonard Lopate. Sarah Klein is a preeminent civil and trial attorney at the law firm of Manley, Stewart & Finaldi, where she specializes in representing survivors of sexual abuse. She's also an advocate for legal, cultural, and political change to support the victims of sexual abuse by perpetrators under the aegis of powerful institutions that include school districts, sport federations, churches, entertainment conglomerates, youth organizations, and Fortune 500 companies. Ms. Klein is a former competitive gymnast and the first known victim of former Olympic women's gymnastics doctor, Larry Nassar. Currently, she's spearheading the fight to extend the statute of limitations for child sexual abuse across 50 states. I'm pleased to welcome Sarah Klein to our show now. Welcome. Hi, good afternoon. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, well, this is an important topic, but I I want to talk to you about your experience as a survivor of sexual assault and your legal career and advocacy work. But first, can we just talk a bit about your gymnastics career? How old were you when you began gymnastics as a child? I was five years old and a girl who lived down the street from me invited me to bring a friend day at the local gymnastics club. Um, And so I attended, I had a blast. We jumped on the trampoline, we ran around. And so of course I go home and beg my mom to sign me up for gymnastics lessons. And that's where it all started. At a gym or in school? At the club, um, where John Gettert and Larry Nasser, John Gettert being my coach and the 2012 Olympic women's gymnastics coach who was charged in February with 24 counts of child abuse, human trafficking, et cetera, and took his own life on his way to his arraignment. So that was the gym where it all started, private gymnastics club in small town, Lansing, Michigan. And so uh, you you met John Gettert at the same time you met Larry Nassar. How were they connected? So I met John Gettert first when I was five. And by the time I was eight, Larry Nassar, a 20-something, not yet even admitted to medical school, came to our gym and asked John if he could be a volunteer athletic trainer to get experience for his medical school application. And John said, sure. He gave him a back room, um, inaccessible by parents or really any adults except for our coaches. And he set up back there and he started with sort of basic athletic trainer tasks like taping our ankles and, you know, taping our shin splints and just kind of basic stuff. Um, But that quickly, quickly progressed into what I now know to be sexual abuse. And you were only five or six years old at the time? I was eight when I met Larry Nassar, eight years old. Yeah. And uh, were you sexually assaulted by John Geddert as well? No, I was not sexually assaulted by John Gettert. However, he was wildly abusive emotionally, physically, and he was charged with um, sexual abuse of a minor this past February. So that uh, was definitely in his wheelhouse. I did not experience that. Yeah. As you said, he committed suicide after that. Um, So you you said that 
uh, but how did you react to the, their behavior at the time? Did you just assume that that's the way coaches are? Yeah. You know, when you're eight years old, you barely just learned how to tie your shoes. Um, I mm. have an almost six year old daughter and, and to look at her and her innocence and her, she just learned to read, you know, she thinks everybody is kind in the world, right? She doesn't have the language of, you know, sexual abuse or, you know, to, to be able to understand these, the dynamics that were going on in our gym. So yes, you know, the, the, the coaching that John Getter employed was right out of the Caroli playbook. The Carolis being sort of the most famous coaches in the sport of gymnastics. Eastern Europeans came to the United States, coached Mary Lou Retton, coached, you know, Dominique Mochianu, Kim Zemeskel, all these gymnastics champions. Um, and their tactics were fear-based, instill fear, take away the voice of the child, get them to give their bodies over to you, keep them from ever developing any sense of self or voice, and train the crap out of them. Mm. Um, so they win and find doctors and other enablers to put around them that is going to allow them to compete on broken bones, allow them to be starved, right? All this stuff and keep the parents super detached and out of the picture and disallow them to attend anything. And then you'll win. And guess what? You know, it worked for many decades. There were a lot of gold medals. However, what we're seeing now as we've, we are working to expose that very abusive culture is that it's wrong. It's child abuse. It's unbelievable the pieces that these these gymnasts were put through, including myself, though I was never an Olympic gymnast. Um, and we have the organizations who are enabling this USA gymnastics and the Olympic committee being two, two of the biggest enablers where they know this is happening. Um, they knew Larry Nasser was sexually abusing little girls, Olympians, and they turned, turned their head the other way. Why? Because these were gold medal winning gymnasts and why upset the apple cart if your financial compensation is directly tied to gold medals. So I know I just said a lot. It's a multi-layered story and a multi-layered well, issue. Um, go ahead. I'll go into some of the details. First of all, you said starved. That was to keep your weight down. That It's important for, for gymnasts to, to remain thin. Yes. Nutritional guidelines. I made the mistake at, at one point, um, my mom running around multiple children picked me up from school to drop me off for four or five hours of gymnastics practice. Normally she had a healthy little meal packed for me that day. She had fast food in the car because she was running late. I ate, you know, McDonald's kids meal, happy meal on the way to practice. I then vomited at practice out of fear or overexertion. I don't remember which. And John Getter examined my vomit, saw that I had eaten French fries, called <laughs> the entire gym over. Um, and mm. I'm like 10. 
had, you know, 20, 30, 40 girls standing around me, you know, took the back of my, took my ponytail, pushed my face down into the vomit to teach everybody a lesson. And then had me clean it up on my hands and knees with vomit dripping off my face. And that was like Tuesday at the gym. That wasn't something where it was like, oh my gosh, this crazy thing happened. It was like, that's the kind of stuff he was doing all the time. Um, But you thought it was normal. You have zero context for life. You have zero context for childhood. You think it is normal. It happens every day. That's the way you're treated. Don't speak. Don't talk back. Just nod your head, say yes or no, and do whatever this big, scary grown-up tells you to do. You've said that both you and your parents were groomed by Larry Nasser. In what ways? Absolutely. So I painted a pretty accurate picture of what John Geddert was like. Mm. Larry Nassar was the exact opposite. He was loving. He was kind. He was warm. He was funny. He was a break in practice. When you got to go back to that room um, to see Larry, you took a big sigh of relief. He was the good cop. Geddert was the bad cop. Um, And that's what allowed Larry to earn our trust, our love. He was our safe person in the gym. And so when Larry tells you, you know, lie on your stomach on my treatment table, I'm going to do this treatment to release this muscle in your lower back. And it's going to this, and it's going to that you're eight or 10 or 12. And you're like, okay, Larry, you know, whatever you say, that sounds great. You want to help me? That's amazing. You know? And, and so he was loved. He was absolutely loved. He was not threatening. I, I, I say he reminded me of like a Labrador puppy, like nerdy, goofy, super sweet. Our families loved him. He was warm. You know, I went to his wedding um, back in the 90s when I was a teenager. He was part of our family. And, and that's why zero red flags went up um, for me and so many of these other girls about this treatment being sexual in nature. And again, remember, so you weren't aware when he was crossing the line, you just thought that that was normal. No, I had John and Larry and other coaches hands all over my body Mm. all the time. That's sort of implicit to the sport. Um, you're being spotted, you're being lifted, you're being, you know, so it didn't, at all in my young unformed brain who knew nothing different um, from such a young age that, that this was not medical. And, and Larry was a doctor of osteopathic medicine. He was not an MD. So I equate his treatment to sort of chiropractic treatment, right? Where, where you're being you stretched and twisted and bended and massaged and, you know, your back cracked and all this stuff. So it was very hands-on, um, you know, and in, in some ways, you know, some of the medicine he practiced over the years probably was very helpful and, and, and legitimate. It was just, you know, the, the insertion, you know, of his hands in places they should not be. That clearly was not medical looking back. I know that as an adult who's out of the cult and who has some, some wherewithal now, but as a little girl, you don't know anything. You're like, yeah, this is normal. Whatever adults tell you, you believe when you're eight, right. For the most part. And I, and I hope 
as a culture and society, we've changed in that way. And we are giving our kids language and we are teaching them about safe zones on their body and that kind of stuff. But this was the eighties and the nineties where you're not locking your front door in little Lansing, Michigan, much less talking about sexual abuse of a child. Right. So did you ever tell your parents or other adults about what was happening in practice? When, when I say it did not register as anything different than the sky is blue. I mean that, um, again, it's, you, you look at cults and you think to yourself, how could this person not understand, you know, that, that polygamy or marrying 13 year olds or whatever is crazy when you're in it, you're drinking the Kool-Aid, especially if you're a child who literally has zero life experience in an unformed brain. No red flags go off at all. I know that's really hard for people to imagine. And as an adult, I look at other cults and I think to myself, I have a hard time imagining that these people don't get that this is screwed up. Um, but I didn't get it. And so I, I, my answer to you is no, because I did not think there was anything to report to my parents. I thought this is what happens when you're an elite athlete period even even into even into puberty how long did uh, his sexual abuse last it lasted for 17 years i was a 25 year old ivy league graduate with in my first year of law school and i was still going back to michigan visiting my family going out to lunch with my dear friend and mentor larry nasser going back to michigan state sports medicine clinic and getting treatment for my lower back pain. Um, so again, people say how in the world, um, but again, when you're conditioned a certain way, you can be very bright and very with it and still believe that this is legitimate treatment. And there is pelvic floor treatment, you know, where things like this happen, that is legitimate. And so when you love and trust somebody, you're like, yeah, like he knows he's a great doctor. At this point, he's been to four Olympics. He's, you know, treated the most famous athletes in the world. If he's doing it to them, right. And he's been doing this to me and everybody I know since I'm eight, there must be nothing wrong with it. Right. But so, but weren't there accusations made against him during that time? When were the first accusations no. made? It, it, no, there were not accusations made until, oh, I was 25. This came to light. I heard of the first accusations ever about this when I was 36. So, mm-hmm. no. There were no accusations made at that time when I was. And were there any, was there any investigation into the allegations? I guess that was in the 1990s. Not that I know of. No. Um, oh, there were allegations made. Now I know that. Um, yes, there were there were people that were reporting, but that was never made public. Um, there were two gymnasts that reported to a gymnastics coach at Michigan state in 1997. They were told that they were crazy. They were made to apologize to him and they were made to go back and continue to be treated by him saying, you're confused. If you escalate this, you're going to ruin somebody's life. He's the best thing that's ever happened to anybody. Um, and nobody that was never made public. So 
So did people speak up over the years? Yes. 16 times people spoke up. Was it ever investigated? No. Was it ever reported to the proper authorities? No. Did adults in position of authority, coaches, other trainers, you know, executives at USA Gymnastics, when it was reported, did they ever pick up the phone and call the police? No, never. And that Michigan State gymnastics coach is going to prison. She was she was tried and found guilty of um, of lying to a peace officer that she was never told about this in the nineties when she was. And a jury found her guilty um, just in the last year or two. And, um, and so that's where that is. But did anybody tell me? No, in 1997. No, uh, uh-uh. that was never made public to any other person being treated by Larry Nassar. Never. My guest on today's London located at large is Sarah Klein, who is a civil and trial attorney at the law firm of Manley Stewart and Finaldi. This is WBAI New York 99.5 FM streaming live at WBAI.org. But okay, there were these uh, uh, accusations and yet he was allowed to keep his positions not only with USA Gymnastics, but also with Michigan State University from the 1990s and the mid 1990s to 2015. Yeah. Wow. A hundred percent. And that is the same dynamic that we are seeing in all of these organizations with pervasive sexual abuse problems, such as the Catholic Church, the Boy Scouts of America, the Boys and Girls Club, ex- schools, universities, you know, we just settled a case with the University of Southern California. My firm did for $852 million. Mm. Why? Wow. Why? Because they knew this was happening and they shuffled the perpetrator around and allowed it to keep happening. The question is, why the heck would they do that? Well, because it's easier to try to hide it and cover it up than it is to admit guilt and or liability. And that's what USA Gymnastics did. They sat on it for 15, 16 months, they never picked up the phone and called Michigan State University and 60 more little girls were abused mm. by Larry Nasser in those intervening months after our nation's most decorated gold medalists, Ali Raisman, Jordan Weber, Maggie Nichols, Michaela Maroney had come forward to USA Gymnastics saying, we believe Larry Nasser is a sexual predator. You would think they would say, oh my God, we're going to pick up the phone, make sure he has no access to children starting right this second. We're going to investigate this. We're going to turn over everything we have. We're going to be transparent. Nope, never happened. We are still in litigation with USA Gymnastics and the Olympic Committee over that. Um, And still to this day, Nothing to see here. Oh, those files that we had removed from the Caroli Ranch, they went missing. You know, oh, you know, let ourselves be independently investigated by a law firm that we're not paying with full and transparent scope of the investigation. Oh, no, we're not doing that. Right. It's it's a, a limiting liability issue. It's a brand money reputation. 
their income is directly tied to gold medals. And so why, you know, why be transparent when that's the paradigm? And that's what's so broken in so many of these organizations in our country is it's a power paradigm. And where there is power, that you're going to find an abuse of power. Um, and, and you're going to find, you know, a, a reaction that is not to be transparent, not to be accountable, but to cover up. And so it's no surprise that we're seeing the same paradigm play out over and over and over and over again. Yeah, well, but not just institutionally. You 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 say that you were in your twenties already when you consciously acknowledged what had happened to you. Uh, I was in my thirties. Thirties. So that must have thrown you into some incredible state of confusion about how you could have allowed that to have happened without realizing that you were being abused. Yeah. Right. And to be clear, I I didn't allow anything. I was a child for most of that. Um, And entering my 20s, I had already been abused by by the same loved and trusted person for so long. I wasn't consciously walking in there and saying, I'm going to allow this. I, I literally did not believe that this person I loved and tra- it was not on my radar. So, um, so I want to give myself at least that much credit, um, that, that my brain had never fully formed. I had been traumatized since the age of eight. I, I was not consciously making that decision. Um, had you already, days- were you already in law school at the time? I was a first year law there? student. The last time mm-hmm. I saw Larry Nasser. um, but I'm not sitting there studying sexual abuse in law school. <laughs> you know, I'm studying, yeah. I'm studying, you know, constitutional law. Right. Um, and so 36 years old, some other women come forward. There's an expose in the Indianapolis star newspaper. In old That's September, 2016, 2016. She texts yeah. me the link and the, and what I thought I knew to be true about my life, about who I was, about who I loved, about who I trusted blew up in one split second. I looked at the article and I said, Oh my God. And I immediately was like, how could you not have understood this? There was shame involved. There was self-hatred involved. There was all the things you, you could imagine, um, involved. There were other survivors, however, that when they read that article, their first reaction was, Larry would never do that. This is crazy. These girls are nuts. Girls who had been abused by him, looking back now, their first reaction was to defend him because we loved him, <laughs> right? We, we thought he was our friend. We went to his wedding. We knew his children. Um, and that's the mind, you know, screw up of a good guy predator is you think you know them. Um, And they let you believe that you know them. And so it wasn't until 37,000 images of child pornography were found on Larry's hard drive of his computer that he had thrown in the trash, waiting for the trash company to pick it up. Um, A a detective in Michigan went over, went through his trash, pulled it out um, and found 37,000 images of porn, including abuse of infants, including abuse of his own children. Larry Nasser's own children appeared on the hard drive. And so it wasn't until that, that people started to believe 
us. And I think that's a universal message for all listeners is that our go-to can be to disbelieve survivors until you see it in black and white, like in the form of images. Had that happened, Larry Nassar could still be out there abusing kids right now. And likely he would be. Because he was, because all of this was kind of ignored by the U.S. Olympic Committee uh, community, USA Gymnastics, Michigan State University. Uh, how did he react to the charge charges in the Indianapolis Star that he'd sexually abused at that point just two young women? Yep. So, so one thing that's important to note is when USA Gymnastics found this out in 2015. They wanted it to go away so badly that they allowed Larry to put out a letter on Facebook, which I read because at the time I was his Facebook friend, of course, that said, after much consideration with my family, I've decided I want to travel less and I love USA Gymnastics and they love me, but I'm going to resign from my position at USA Gymnastics. Okay. They knew that he was sexually abusing Olympians at that point and they struck a deal with him to allow him to gracefully bow out and to resign. Now, Larry, there's there's fabulous video online of, of, of Larry being investigated um, by the detectives at, at the Michigan State Police Department, where you can tell he's nervous, he's jittery, he's, you know, it's medical treatment and da, 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 da. And he was so narcissistic that he was trying to talk medical jargon circles around the detectives. Um, and you know, deny, 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 and don't you know who I am and all the same, all the same stuff. Um, but you can tell he's nervous and you can tell he knows he's in deep trouble. And you say that formal charges were brought to him after investigators found that hard drive? Um, the sequencing of that, I don't know, but I know that he was picked up um, right after the charges were uh, right after the, the hard drive was found, if he had already been interviewed by the police, when allegations are made, which were made, which I presume, um, I presume he was, um, the sequencing of that I'm not positive about. Were you surprised by the number of survivors who went public? Um, not really. Because when somebody gets away with that for 30 years, you know, I could put a, a start date on it. Um, and that's one reason I came forward as I kept seeing reports of this having started in the late 90s. Um, and it didn't start in the late 90s. I could add another decade um, to, to what he was doing. And when I came forward, many of my teammates also came forward, which was really, we were able to put a beginning on this. Um, and so, no, when you do the math um, and you, you figure out what I now know, which is, you know, compulsive pedophiles have exactly that, a compulsion for for sexual acts with children, um, you know, and, and the the access he had to children, I'm not surprised by it. No, um, took a lot of bravery, though. I'll tell you that. Well, you chose to be identified in the trial as victim 125. Why that number? 
<laughs> I didn't get to choose that number, but I did oh. choose to be anonymous um, because at that point I was in shock and trauma of, of trying to sort out the fact that I had been living essentially a lie my entire life um, and had been harmed by somebody I loved. I was devastated. I was depressed. I was broken. I was confused. I, I felt um, shame. I felt embarrassed. I felt, you know, like maybe I could have done something had I been stronger when I was eight to stop all of it. Right. And so I wanted that moment to be between my former friend and loved one, um, not between me my former friend and loved one in the rest of the world. Um, there was a ton of media in the courtroom and I wasn't ready to have that, those cameras in my face. But um, you still had to uh, confront Nasser in court. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And, and I mean, that was the last time I was ever going to get to talk to somebody I knew my whole life. Right. Mm -hmm. and, and so I, I had a lot that I needed to say, um, to give myself some closure. And, and I wanted that moment. I mean, it was really one of the more intimate moments of my life. You're standing four feet away from someone you used to love and that you thought you'd know forever. And you thought would mentor you and be in your corner forever. It's really hard. It's really hard. And, and so because the nature of our relationship was so personal, I wanted that to be personal in the courtroom. And, you know, over time, I don't, I don't even know that Larry knew who the, some of these girls were, right? The numbers just got so big and he was seeing so many girls. Um, he was sort of their doctor, not their friend. You know, it, it was, I think maybe a different dynamic. I don't know for sure. Um, but for those of us who were older and kind of grew up with him, it was, it was a personal relationship. Um, we were in each other's families. And so that was different. I wasn't ready for the media. And, and I, I had some things I needed to sort out. What was he sentenced to? He was sentenced to, I believe, 75 to 175 years in prison. Mm. You know, the rest of his life. And those were just on state charges. He got another 60 years on the federal porn charges. And so we already knew that going into into the state charges. He was already um, he was already in there for life just based on the federal sentence. But it was it was really important for us to know that he could never, ever, ever harm another child. You're listening to Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. With Sarah Klein, a civil and trial attorney at the law firm of Manley, Stewart, and Finaldi. And we are talking about uh, child sex abuse uh, of, uh, of serious athletes. Uh, you talked earlier about John uh, Gettert, uh, who committed suicide, but he led the U.S. women's gymnastics team to a gold medal in the 2012 Olympics in, in London. Uh, he killed himself the day he was brought up on 24 charges that included criminal sexual assault involving a minor. Um, 
were you, what was your reaction to his suicide? Oh, that was a brutal day. You know, we had been waiting for years um, for something to happen with him because he was just as abusive as Larry, but in different ways. Um, And so we had been waiting and waiting and we got a new attorney general, Dana Nessel in the state of Michigan and her office did a remarkable job in getting us to the day where he was actually going to be charged. Um, And one thing that remains true about John Getter was he was the most arrogant, narcissistic, nasty, above the law mentality type of person that I've ever encountered. And so you know, looking back, it's like, well, of course, John Getter was never going to prison. Nobody was ever he was never going to allow that to happen to himself. Um, but on that day, it was shocking to in the morning be told he's been charged. He's been charged. And then by lunchtime, he's dead. Um, and, you know, he, he was allowed to turn himself in on that day. I, I should have known he would never do that. Um, and it was sort of a final, you know, middle finger to, to all of us to say, yeah, you think my quality of life is ever going to change. You think I'm ever going to take responsibility for what I did to all of you? Yeah, no, thanks. And then he drives to a rest stop and, and commits suicide by a gunshot wound to the head. Um, well, it sounds to me like, uh, what you had there was a good cop, bad cop situation. Uh, the fact that he was abusive in one way probably made it a lot easier for Larry Nasser, the nice guy, to be abusive in the other way. Absolutely right. Yes. I mean, John was terrifying and horrifying and Larry was kind and loving. They, they both knew what was up with each other. You know, John would walk in that back room with the heavy metal door and see us lying face down on a treatment table with just a little hand towel covering our naked bodies and walk back out you know, Hey, Larry, you know, can you get Sarah to bars? Um, next, you know, she's up on bars, you know, have her put her clothes back on and send her out. Right. So they knew, they knew. And, and Larry would console us when John, you know, would hit us or drop us or shame us or scream at us. And so they both had it figured out. One broke us, you know, physically and emotionally and the other, you know, then swooped in and took advantage of us sexually. It was, it was a, a messed up place. That's for sure. How much blame do you place on USA gymnastics and Michigan state university? All of it, (laughs) all of it. Right. I mean, they, they had reports for decades, but it was working. And, and that's when I bring it back to the Corollis, they coached in the exact same style as John Getter. John, I think, besides having a, a raging anger management problem and a personality disorder, um, figured out what worked and figured out how to get to the Olympics based on what he saw working. And USA Gymnastics loved it. They loved having these coaches and this doctor who had it all figured out in terms of producing gold medals, because again, their paycheck was directly affected by that. So Um, has their response changed with the conviction of Nasser and, and get it suicide? 
No, it's lip service. So their public responses has changed, but it's all it's all BS. Um, the, some of the same people in those roles are still in charge. Um, the, the amount of cover up that occurred is still slowly trickling out. And I'll tell you this, there's much more to come in this story. This has not been wrapped up yet. Um, and I do think we're going to learn more about the extent that adults went to to cover this up. And it's horrifying. Um, and it's not unique to USA Gymnastics in Michigan State. You know, we have a case against the University of Michigan, which is in the news right now. My firm is representing over 200 men abused by a doctor there, 200 many of them athletes, some of them very high profile athletes. And that case is factually extremely similar to that $852 million settlement we just got at the University of Southern California. Same stuff, different organizations. Same and it doesn't matter whether it's ma different. males or females. No, nope, not at all. I nope. I at the uh, 2018 ESPY Awards, you accepted the Arthur Ashe Courage Award on behalf of yourself and the hundreds of other survivors who spoke out and testified about Nasser's abuse. Uh, there was even a special staging done for the ceremony. Yeah, it was that was a pivotal moment for many of those survivors, including myself, to sort of take our power back and to feel so heard and so embraced and acknowledged um, after we had been told that we were confused and liars and after money and all these things for so many years at that point. Um, it was beautifully done. And I credit the executive producer of the ESPY Awards, Maura Mant, who is, has passed away in, in the last year. Um, and that was her vision. And it was visually extremely compelling for the music to be playing and more and more and more Nasser victims to be filling that stage. Oh. And I'll always be grateful to, to her um, and to ESPN for allowing her to give that visual to the world. Um, and I think we saved lives that night. You know, in, in my speech, my acceptance speech, I said, if there's just one person watching watching tonight who, you know, can use our story to find their voice, then all of this has been worth it. Um, and, and I'm sure that someone somewhere out there heard that. And, and I know that just from, from many of my clients who saw me that night and, and now have hired me to represent them, that that gave them the strength to come forward and to hold their abusers and enablers accountable. And so that was, that was pivotal. And I, I sort of say, you know, that was the, the evening where I stepped into my adulthood. Um, I was no longer a scared, terrified, confused child. And I stepped into my own and said, you know what, I'm a mom now. <laughs> I, have, I have a little girl um, and I'm a lawyer and I'm and I can be strong for those who aren't strong. And how long how far into your law studies were you when you realized you wanted to specialize in cases like your own? Um, 
I was a lawyer for over a decade at that point. Um, it wasn't until I went through the legal process myself where I found, you know, we had an amazing legal team on Nasser, um, but it was all middle-aged men. Um, and I love them and they were fabulous, but there was a need for not only a female, but a female survivor in the mix. And not just because all of our clients, you know, all of the clients in NASA were, were female, but a lot of times my male clients will say, I'm more comfortable talking to you about this. And especially cause you've gone through it yourself. And so, um, and so that's where I said, this is what I need to do. And it became so clear that in order for what I had gone through to not be in vain and in order for me to not curl up in a ball and, and want to harm myself, I had to give some meaning to what had happened to me. And, and that's how I did it. And so to be the strong one for people who are just coming out of abusive situations or are just talking about it for the first time for me to get to be strong for them has healed me in the most remarkable, beautiful way. And so, you know, the, the term full circle moment is a little bit cliche, but, but I think this is really the definition of a full circle moment. You recently published an opinion piece in business insider in which you wrote quote, Monsters like John Geddard and Larry Nasser do not just appear out of nowhere. They were born and nurtured by USA Gymnastics and the U.S. Olympic and Paralympic Committee. In my experience, it is a culture that places money and medals above the health, safety, and dignity of children. Yeah. You think that's going to change? Have changes been made? You know, ch changes have been, again, made via public relations, BS, you know, this policy and this policy. But until <laughs> the bad guys are held accountable, there is no change in, in, in the fact that this NGB, USA Gymnastics, still exists in many ways in the exact same way that it existed when all this happened is unbelievable. And, you know, the United States Olympic and Paralympic Committee still claims to this day, oh, athlete safety, that's not our job. Well, then whose job is it? How, how, who takes care of these athletes when they go to the Olympics when they're 15 years old? Uh, you would think Team USA takes care of these athletes. You would think USA Gymnastics takes care of these athletes. Nope, nope, nobody, nobody is taking responsibility for that. We still don't have answers. We still don't know who knew what, when, where, why, how. We're getting more information still by the day. But, you know, the proper institutional response, and this goes for anybody listening who works on behalf of an institution, is not to lawyer up and put out rainbow flower PR statements and marketing efforts. The proper response is, oh my gosh, this is appalling. Sexual abuse of a child, sexual abuse of our athletes, of our, of our students, of our patients, of our whatever it may be. This is appalling. We are going to fully cooperate and be transparent and do everything, move mountains to make sure this never happens again. Um, however, 
all we see is lawyered up liability, mm-hmm. you know, let's let's mitigate liability, let's lawyer up, let's, you know, try to get out of this as, as cheaply as possible. And, and these institutions are making the mistake in thinking this is about money. It's not about money, it's about accountability. Survivors want to know what happened, what failed, who failed, how it failed, and they want to know it will never happen again. It's really simple. The words, I'm sorry, and we take responsibility, go a long way in these cases. And we have yet to hear that from USA Gymnastics or the Olympic Committee, but for BS, you know, PR statements. Nothing has truly changed. There's nothing really actually in play other than, you know, some junky new, you know, stuff that they can put out and say, well, we do this now and we do this now. Same people in in positions of authority, same people running the show. Nothing's changed. And the sport of gymnastics, much like, you know, cheer, figure skating, U.S. swimming, et cetera, et cetera. Athletes aren't safe. Period. So you're okay. assuming that there are people out there right now, like John Gettard and Larry Nasser. I know there are. I know for a fact there are. And I represent survivors, <laughs> you know, who who bring cases against the people like that. These are not these are not one offs. It's a culture. And I hope I've done a good job today sort of trying to describe what the culture looks like. That culture is not unique to gymnastics. When you have compensation tied in all of these NGBs to the medals that are won by the athletes, you are never going to come forward and say, we have bad people doing bad things because you want to win. Um, and, and you can pick that you can pick that culture conversation that I hope I, I've painted a good picture of and plop it in lots of different organizations and see the same stuff different day. And I have the unique perspective of being a lawyer suing a lot of these institutions where I can say, yeah, same thing. Same thing I, I saw in this case, same thing I saw in this case, same, you know, same thing, different organization, same institutional response, usually the wrong response. And, you know, until we are able to hold these people to account, which we are through the civil process, um, nothing will change. And, well, let's and, talk about the civil process yeah. in just a moment. But uh, you're listening to Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. And my guest is Sarah Klein. Uh, attorney Sarah Klein. Uh, we, uh, I, I want to address from in the few minutes we have left, New York State's statute of limitations. Uh, uh, how does it compare with other states? Uh, and uh, did you play a role in drafting this, this new legislation? Um, I was not involved in drafting the Adult Survivors Act. I was involved in the Child Victims Act. I was there when the governor signed that bill um, into law in February of 2019, extending the statutes in New York proactively, but also providing this look back window, which provided adults, people who are adults now, like myself, who were abused as children, like myself, to bring civil claims against 
their perpetrators and the entities who enabled them. Um, had I not had something similar in the state of Michigan, I would not have had any legal recourse whatsoever. And so um, New York is amazing in that not only did we get that one year um, look back window with the Child Victims Act, it was then extended for another year due to COVID. And so any adult who was sexually abused in the state of New York, despite wherever you live now, if the abuse occurred in New York, um, you have until August of this year to file a claim or talk to a lawyer. After August, you have no recourse and you never will. Um, but so I th- the, the New York State Senate passed the Adult Survivors Act earlier this month. Uh, but it's been stalled in the assembly. Why? Yeah. So the Adult Survivors Act um, is similar to the Child Victims Act, but it allows people abused as adults. So if you were 18 years old attending Columbia University, um, which ironically is is where I went to college um, and you were abused by your doctor there where there's a case just like that, um, you would have no recourse in access to the courts unless it's this adult survivors act is passed, which would allow that person who is 18, who might now be 50 or 55 or whatever to bring a claim. Um, why was it stalled? You know, um, that it's a pretty simple answer. It's why I think a lot of these window bills get quashed, why the one in, in Pennsylvania um, is not even being brought to the floor for a vote. It's about money. It's about money and it's about lawmakers having some financial pressure on them and financial incentive to either protect entities or hold entities to account. And so, you know, you have a lawmaker like Majority Leader People Stokes in New York, who clearly has no comprehension of trauma. And she Mm -hmm. says, quote, if someone hurt you, say it right now. Um, that's not how it works. (laughs) That's not how it works. The average age of reporting is 52 years old. Why? Because you're traumatized, because you're confused, because you're suffering, because you turn to alcohol, drugs, you're depressed, anxiety, you're embarrassed, right? Why should the law protect the, protect the perpetrator and the enablers and not protect the survivor. What's wrong with that, right? And so she clearly doesn't get it. She has refused to bring this bill um, for a vote and probably because she knows it would have a good chance of passing if it was actually brought to the floor. And same thing happening with Senator Kim Ward in the state of Pennsylvania, someone whom I cannot say enough negative things about. (laughs) Um, Right. And it's like, we're talking about sexual abuse. This is not a partisan issue. And that's where I think these bills get, get stopped and blocked is because lawmakers are viewing them as partisan issues instead of just child rape or adult rape, which to me is, is pretty black and white. You're, you're okay, either well, on the side of the perp or on the side of the victim, period. 
We have just one minute left, but I, I was wondering about the word closure, which is often invoked when the victim of a hor horrific crime receives justice. What do you think about that? That is it the same thing as healing? You know, I, I think you can get closure, um, but healing, you know, by having access to the courts and, the, and you, you're able to sue and the, and the case ends and you, you can hold these people to account. Healing is like getting on your yoga mat every day. You never arrive. You just practice, right? You, you just, the process is the practice. Healing is a process. Um, it's a few steps forward, a few steps back. I'm 41, mother of two little girls, and I still have my triggers and I still have my bad days and I want survivors out there to know, yeah, that's to be expected and, and just keep moving forward and keep reaching out for support and know that we're all in this together. It's a journey. That journey is going to last a lifetime. We're never going to arrive, but there are people out there like myself who are cheering you on, whether, whether we ever meet and our paths ever cross, I'm cheering you on. I believe you and you are not alone. Because uh, one of the concerns uh, of people who have been victimized is that by making a, th a thing about it, they are stirring up all bad feelings. Yeah, it's like ripping a Band-Aid off. But until you yeah. walk straight into that ring of fire, you're not going to be able to walk out the other side. So, so my advice to survivors who are carrying this on their shoulders, especially in the state of New York, if you were abused as a child, take that backpack off, you know, talk to a lawyer, get some accountability um, and, and know, you know, especially with this child victims act closing, there is an opportunity for closure. Um, but healing, healing is a lifelong, a lifelong journey. Sarah Klein, thank you so much for being on our show. You've been a great it's, guest. It's my pleasure. Thank you so much for giving me this platform. I truly appreciate it. And that brings us to the end of our show. Special thanks to Todd McGovern for preparing today's segment. You can access our archives at WBAI.org. We're also available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and everywhere else that podcasts are available. And you'll find links to our over 500 past interviews on our website, LeonardLopateAtLarge.com. If you'd like to write to me, my email address is LeonardLopate at WBAI.org. Before I go, I need to ask you to consider supporting WBAI. And you can do that by going online to give to WBAI.org or by calling 212-209-2950. That's 212-209-2950. Do it right now, please, to continue bringing this show to you weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m. We, we need your help to keep this historic station, the only one on the New York radio dial that's 100% listener-sponsored on the air. So why not make that call now and make sure this show and the station that brings it to you will be here in the years to come. And one great way to show your support for what we do here on, on Leonard Lopate at Large is to become a sustaining member, what we call a BAI buddy. BAI buddies provide WBAI with a steady, stable source of, of support, something we need now more than ever in these crisis times. But whatever you choose to donate, what matters is that you join your fellow listeners to keep this alternative to corporate radio alive and well. Again, the number to call to make your tax-deductible contribution is 212-209-2950, or you can go online to give to WBAI.org. 
Um, and remember, you just wouldn't have heard the kind of in-depth conversation that we just had anywhere else in radio. Please be sure to make your contribution in the name of Leonard Lopate at large, and, and thank you very much. And I hope you can join us for tomorrow's show when Professor of Greek and Latin in Ancient History at the University of Michigan, David Stone Potter, will discuss his fascinating new book, Disruption, Why Things Change. We'll see you then.